As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Defend and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Michael Lloyd, Principal of Wycliffe Hall and author of Cafe Theology. He also recently co-authored a brilliant new book with Rachel Atkinson called Image Bearers. Michael, thank you so much for joining us again today. We're going to be focusing on this brilliant book, Image Bearers, which you have co-written with Rachel Atkinson. Now, this book was inspired by and dedicated to pastoral counsellor Ruth Miller, who died in 2013. So before we sort of dive into some of the stuff that you explore in the book, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who Ruth Miller was? Yes, well, as you say, Ruth was... um a counsellor and that's how I first came across her. I was helping to run a large London church at the time and mainly of young people and there was a huge need for for Christian counselling and um, uh, Henny Johnson who was our director of uh, pastoral care there came across Ruth uh, I think at a conference somewhere and we started using her and finding that people who you know after months of pastoral chats with people like me had made zero progress whatsoever began to make real progress um, under Ruth and so we got to know her I used her a certain amount myself um, and then we just became friends really uh, until uh, she died very sadly of cancer she knew that she was dying um, so we were. We thought we've got to get these insights that she has out of her before she dies. Died. So we, Rachel and I, went and interviewed her uh, for a couple of long interviews. And um, this book is basically what Rachel has done in this book is to uh, structure those insights uh, in the second half of the book of how do you actually um, get cleaned up from the messes that we get ourselves into and. Uh, that we find ourselves in um so that's that's and then i i did a couple of three chapters at the beginning which is a kind of biblical theological framework for that focusing on the image of god so that, that that's kind of the background it is it is largely um ruth's ruth's insights that we're sharing 
And the kind of the tagline on the front of the book is restoring our identity and living out our calling. I mean, why is restoration so important, Michael? Well, it's interesting. Um, Ruth and her husband, Andrew, uh, used to do teaching on this in, in, in local churches, and they entitled it Restoring God's Masterpieces. Uh, and I think that's quite a useful image because um, one of the, the, the as you say, the, the title reflects the fact that we're looking at the image of God, the fact that we are bearers of God's image. And that's a bit like uh, an art, a, a life class in, in an art kind of setting. You have the model in the middle um, and then you have the artists all around. And if they're good artists, they will all draw really good pictures of that model, but from different angles. And that, I think, is quite a helpful picture of uh, human beings. We're made in the image where self-portraits are God, but from different angles. Um, and that's why I need to listen to you and your perspective, because you will give me a different angle on who God is than I than I will have. So I limit my limitations and I expand my understanding, my perspectives by listening to, engaging with, learning from people um, who are made in the image of God, but from a different angle and, and therefore carrying a different perspective. Um, so that's, and I, but having said that, we're messed up. We don't reflect that perfectly to one another. And therefore we need both for our own sake, because being messed up messes us up, um, but also from other people's point of view, that they currently don't get that understanding of God, that expansion of uh, perspective that they could and should do and were intended to have in the purposes of God. So for those two reasons, both for our own sake and for the sake of other people around us, um, we need to clean up the image. And obviously, one way of cleaning up the image is through counselling. And, and obviously, Ruth was a counsellor. I mean, do you yes. think counselling is the only way that brings restoration? Or do we need more of a kind of holistic perspective? You, you know, you sort of have written a theological grounding at the beginning of the book. Do we need more than, say, for instance, just a kind of secular psychology to bring restoration in, in, in these situations? Well, I think secular psychology has a very important role to play uh, and, and a very, very positive role to play. Um, but it does it within a particular remit. Uh, it's a bit like going to the doctor for something physical. You know, the doctor can mend your broken leg or whatever it may be or give you a pill to take away whatever it is. Uh, and that's really important. Uh, and it's a really, really helpful and positive thing. But secular psychology um, does that within a particular remit. And it's great within that remit. Uh, but it can't tell you the meaning of life. It can't tell you how you should act, give you an ethic. It can't tell you how much you're loved. Um, it can't forgive you. Those are just outside his remit. It's not because the, you know, it's a nasty, rotten business. It's not. It's a very good thing. But that's just outside its remit. Um, and in some versions, it can actually downplay guilt because it can't forgive you and say, oh, you know, it's just a, it's a false guilt. It's a form of neuroticism. Uh, just try not to be so hard on yourself. Well, when you've done something profoundly wrong you know that's not gonna 
chuck the, the mustard. Um, uh, but generally speaking, it's, it's a very, very good thing. But you do need these wider questions answered. You do need, I think, to be brought back into contact with the love by which and for which you were made. Uh, that's what's going to be transformative uh, in the long term. So that's why we've written this book to supplement uh, secular forms of, of counselling with with a, a person in the end who does bring some of those answers, whose love is actually transformative. Uh, in the end, we know that people loving us and accepting us and valuing us and taking us seriously and listening to us is is what's transformative. And when you have the person who made the universe doing that, that's that's more transformative than than, than anything else, I think. Well, you've definitely already touched on this with what you've just been saying there, but why is understanding the image of God so important for understanding what it is to be human, do you think, Michael? Well, I think... Well, let me just take one of the categories. I mean, I, I, in the book, I look at kind of seven a sevenfold refraction of the image of God. And, uh, and then the first of those I look at is, is that of value. Um, Genesis, and it, but there are not many references actually to the image of God in the Bible. It's, it's a key concept, but, but the, they're fairly few and far between. But the, one of them is Genesis 9, where we're told not to murder, not to take the life of another human being because... Um, that person is made in the image of God. Uh, so the image of God is about value. Uh, and and I think that's profoundly needed. I think we don't actually believe our own value so often. Sometimes when that isn't reflected back to us in our upbringing or by our colleagues or by our family or by our friends or whatever. Um, but even where it is, we struggle to believe it. Uh, so to have that as the foundational, one of the foundational beliefs of uh, a whole religious tradition, or two two whole religious traditions, Judaism and Christianity, um, seems to me, again, to put ground under our feet uh, when we are trying both to value ourselves and to realise and to remember that we need to value other people and treat them with that dignity and that respect that they warrant because of their innate and intrinsic and, in my view, infinite value. Well, I guess with all of these things, so all of your sort of sevenfold refraction and, and just yeah. the, the image of God generally, what does that perhaps mean for atheists or anyone else who doesn't necessarily believe in God, much less think we're made in the image of God? Do you think, um, do you think some of the stuff that you've written in the book can still be a helpful indicator for, for people who don't believe in God, Michael? Well, when I'm being even-handed... Uh, which is not very often, but when <laughs> when I am, I think I would say um, that the the Achilles heel of religious belief, a theistic belief, is the problem of evil. It, the world does not look like it was made by a good and loving and omnipotent God. It it sometimes really really doesn't. That's its Achilles heel now. I've given my intellectual life to looking at that, and I think there are things to be said about that, but 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 that is our weak point. If you look at atheism, I think the weak point is, is much better on that. The world looks like the kind of random place that 
uh, atheism would would say it is in many ways. Um, but where its weak point is, is trying to find grounds for the value that we know each other to have. Uh, and and it's, I'm not saying that's impossible, but it, it, it's a struggle. And so I would say to an atheist uh, reader, uh, have a look at this and, and, and see how it looks from this perspective. One of the things Rowan Williams is always saying is that faith gives you a place to stand. And, and I would just say, try looking here and seeing how the world looks. And if it doesn't actually mesh with some of your own instincts, needs, uh, insights, um, and, and put ground on your feet, particularly at those points where atheism struggles. We need to take a short break, but before we get back to the discussion, I want to invite you to take a look at a new unbelievable course. It's called Did It Really Happen? The Birth of Jesus. Perhaps you've been asked questions about the historicity of Jesus, or maybe you have questions of your own. We've made an in-depth course with experts and theologians diving into the historical accuracy and arguments for and against the Jesus birth narratives. You will be guided through all areas of the discussion with N.T. Wright, Emil Ewing, Daryl Bopp and others. Check it out by visiting premierunbelievable.com slash courses. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. We're going to be dedicating um, at least one podcast to the problem of evil and looking at that a little bit more, which I'm excited is probably not the right word, but I'm I am very pleased <laughs> that we're going to be doing that. You're, you're dreading it. <laughs> but you do dedicate a whole chapter of this book to the topic of brokenness. Would you say just yes. a little bit about how we're broken and I guess how understanding our brokenness can help to bring us healing? Because that's the crucial element there, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the first thing to say is uh, this in a Christian and Judeo-Christian understanding, human beings are good things that have gone wrong. They're not bad things. And that's really important to say because some forms of religion have almost suggested that we are miserable, worthless worms and, uh, you know, why God would ever bother with us is a bit, is a bit difficult to fathom. Um no, we are good. We are made in the image of God. That gives us value. God values us. Uh, he made us for a relationship with himself. We are ontologically, in the, in the realm of being good, but messed up. Um, and that actually gives hope that we can be put right. Um, if it weren't for that first bit, the loved bit, the valued bit, the created bit, where is the guarantee that we can ever be put right? Uh, whereas what this is giving is, 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 you know, we know from the doctrine of the image of God, we know as Christians from the cross that God is not going to give up on us, that he is committed, actually internally and eternally committed to um, putting us right and, and polishing up the image. So, um, that's that's where I'd start, I think. And like I said, we're going to be talking in greater deal about the fall because that's quite a large part yeah. of, of your doctoral research. But how does the fall and the sort of Christian understanding of the fall impact our image? I guess it's both of God and of ourselves and also of other people. The doctrine of the fall, paradoxically, because it sounds depressing, <laughs> you're fallen, you're miserable. <laughs> Um, 
is actually a way of talking about the goodness both of God and of creation. It's a way of saying, it, again, that it's a good thing that's gone wrong. It's not a bad thing. Um, and and therefore that God is good because he didn't make the world to be a place of torture, conflict, violence, hatred, and, and the rest of it. He made it to be harmonious. He made it to be in harmony with himself and therefore with ev every other bit of itself. Um, and, and it's gone away from that, but that it, it is not of his doing. So it keeps, it maintains the goodness of God, but it also maintains the goodness of us, the created order, um, and, and God's purposes for creation. And how does a healthy understanding of who we are, um, perhaps informed by the fall and a sort of theological understanding of the image of God, how does that healthy understanding of who we are impact our daily lives? Because it's not just a theoretical thing, is it? it it's not. And if I take the example of the value thing before, uh, I mentioned before, it, it impinges on every interaction we have with another person because... Um, I have to remember that they are somebody of infinite value. I cannot therefore use them for my own purposes. Uh, that is not appropriate respect to the kind of people that they are, the kind of value that they have. So that's, that's one way in which it does it. One of the other refractions of uh, the image of God is uh, the role we have in, in ruling creation, which of course means caring for creation because we have to rule creation the way God rules us, and that is uh, a caring and protective uh, way. Um, so the way I, the choices I make about how to interact with the physical world uh, and how I look after that world rather than exploit it, those are other ways in which I have to reflect God uh, because I'm his image bearer and um, in which I have to reflect to the world as well as to other people the way that he cares for protects his creation values his creation dies for his creation i need to have a similarly self-sacrificial attitude to the world that uh, i am called to rule in that sense Michael, this book combines theological head knowledge with sort of the practical pastoral outworking of some of these important issues. What, why is it so important that head and heart are both addressed when it comes to the kind of the outworking of, of the image of God and when it comes to restoration? I think that's because that's how human beings work. Um, we We have heads and hearts and if either is not used... Um, there's a huge impoverishment of, of our being uh, as well as other people's experience of us. Um, so, I mean, I remember when I was at theological college, I remember somebody saying that they saw me as a kind of head on legs. And I think part of the depression I was talking about in an earlier episode of this was the depression was actually my emotional side wanting attention, wanting to get through Um and one of the things I've tried to do as a result of this is as a result of that depression and stop it coming back was to get the, uh, to feed my emotional side more, listening to music and that, that sort of thing. So I, I think it's just a matter of who we are, really.
And one of the ways that you sort of focus on restoration in in this book is to hone in on three particular areas, Jesus, the cross and the church, or if you kind of want to use theological language, the Christological, soteriological and ecclesiological, not that I can ever say that word. Um, why, Why did you hone in on those three areas of restoration in particular, Michael? Well, I mean, the the other obvious one that one could have looked at is, uh, to use another long word, um, the eschatological, the kind of putting right at the putting right of all things. Um, but to be honest, Scripture is fairly sketchy about that, um, what it will look like. We have the, the pictures that we have, the little glimpses of the risen Jesus in his resurrection body, Um but not much beyond that, to be honest. There's a vision of creation in harmony with itself, the wolf lying down with the lamb and all of that, uh, but there's very little detail. So um, and that and the word limit that the publishers gave us <laughs> made, me, made me focus on the ones that, that I did. Um, and also I think they're the most useful. Um, the, the one about how it's meant to happen in the church should shape how we as Christian communities live and try and get us to live as as healthier communities. Um, So I think I felt that those were the most relevant ones. Uh, And when we look at the cross of Jesus, you you had something in the book. There was a line where you said, the cross is where we see God show his working. What did you mean by that phrase? I thought it was a really clever, you sort of were, were talking about maths and when you have to show your working. We're, we're talking about those depressing uh, moments of our youth where we were <laughs> under the mathematical cosh. Yes. Um, I think it, it's one of the things that we don't otherwise easily know, as I said earlier, is our own value. What you see at the cross is the extent of that value in the estimation of God himself. If this is, uh, these are the links that he is prepared to go to. And crucifixion was an appalling way to die. Um, then we see something of our own worth and our own value in God's sight. And even if we don't believe that ourselves, we almost have to say, well, maybe God knows better than I do. Um, and trust that. So it's where God shows his working. Uh, in terms of the extent of our value and our dignity. And obviously one of the things you mentioned there is the ecclesiological, the church aspect. So so why is community important in all of this? And does that necessarily point to a church community? Community is important because we are social animals. Uh, And we can't reflect our own value to ourselves very easily. We need to see it reflected in the eyes and the acts of others. And um, and therefore you want to do it all over the shop, of course. You want that to happen all across the human community generally. But there's a particular role for having, for, for seeing that happening amongst those who are actually trying to reflect the same understanding of the infinite value of each individual person that's been inspired by the cross. Uh, And for that to be knowingly, self-consciously lived out and and loved back uh, from eye to eye, I think that's a really important. Now, 
Christian communities are not always quite that good, but that's <laughs> what we are aiming at. And and um, and I kind of think if you don't aim at it, you'll certainly miss it. If you do aim at it, you'll get bits of it. It's a bit like my um, very very undistinguished cricketing career. Um, I I always longed to score a century and never did. But if I thought if if my aim had been to score two. Um, I might I might have achieved it, but I w- it wouldn't have pushed me the way that scoring a, a century did. Um, and I think it's the same with the Christian community. The Christian community is trying to do something really, really hard, and it doesn't do it. But hopefully and normally, it means that they make a better job of it than if they weren't trying at all. Michael, there's a great line um, that we'll just finish on, if you don't mind. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what you mean when you say this. You say it is sin that homogenizes, holiness particularizes. The cross, therefore, frees every person and every particle to be the unique being it was created to be. Yes, um, I think that was uh, the first bit of that was probably a quote from from Roy Clements, uh, who also said. Um, that when God freezes water, every snowflake is different. When we freeze water, we make ice cubes. Um, I, we make everything the same. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that that's one another of the refractions uh, that I talk about of the image of God, that it is about our uniqueness, uh, that we are each of us in images of God, but from a different angle. And therefore, that differentness is to be celebrated, is to be enjoyed, is to be encouraged, is to be allowed, is to be permitted, is to be um, kind of resourced, uh, because that is how God has made us. Now, that's assuming that the differences are not sinful ones or, or whatever, but but where they are just how we are made, we need to let one another be different. Um, I need to let people be different from how I am, how I see things, how I, what I'm interested in, what I value, um, and be interested in the things they're interested in and dress the way they want to dress. And, and um, it, I, I would long for the Christian community to be a place that celebrates very, very different ways of being within the bounds of, of, of what is... Uh, lawful and godly and wise (laughs) thank you for listening to unapologetic i'm ruth jackson and as always you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show we would love to hear your feedback do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media and don't forget there are more shows articles and resources at our website premierunbelievable.com You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.